Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Retirement Podcast Series brought to you by Connexus Financial. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine. Today, I'm joined by Aaron Mini, the Head of Retirement Income Research at Challenger. Aaron, welcome. Hi, Alex, and thanks for having me. It's great to join you on the podcast today. So I guess one of the places that I think we should start, given your background as uh, you know, a researcher, is to sort of look at one of the key areas that is becoming a big problem for, for a lot of uh, retirees, and that's the decumulation space. And we've seen increasing numbers of Australians moving into retirement, uh, and so moving from the accumulation to decumulation, maybe sort of give a bit of a, a broader overview in terms of how decumulation is different. But with a context to where we are in, in markets today and, and what makes it you know, even more special? Yep. Thanks, Alex. I think when you're starting with a problem about why retirement or decumulation is different, um, it's a subtle thing about the investing. You know, when everyone's just investing in the accumulation phase and you're growing the pot of money, there's enough challenges there. But when you hit that retirement phase, you need to start investing for spending um, because what matters, obviously, is not the size the pot of money grows to, but how much you can actually take out of that and spend in retirement. And we come at this now at a very interesting space because, you know, we obviously, uh, in the wake of uh, COVID-19 and the market reactions and everything, we've seen quite a big impact on financial markets and raising a lot of questions, um, both with, you know, accumulators, retirees, pre-retirees, um, and how that's going to, what that's going to mean for them in terms of what they'll be able to spend through retirement. And in many ways, you know, we've got a super system now that's really, you know, 27, 28 years old, probably only 20 years old in terms of um, decent sort of contributions at the 9% level. This is the first real sort of market crisis we've actually had when there's been significant. You know, if you roll back to the GFC 12 years ago, dramatic impact on the markets but there were two things. There, there wasn't as many retirees. Um, you know, the baby boomers hadn't quite hit that phase yet. And secondly, super hadn't been around long enough for most people to have a lot of money. You know, the average person was retiring with sixty, seventy thousand dollars in their super, so it wasn't doing a lot. It was all their savings outside super, so it was almost like the lucky few. Whereas today, you know, and you look at the numbers out there, you know, the average man has well over two hundred thousand dollars at retirement. The average woman, you know, less than that because we've still got that gender gap. But you're looking at a household um, and your typical average balance is about $400,000 for a couple hitting retirement. So this is something where they've actually got a, a fair bit of money, maybe a bit more um, before the crisis hit. But we've now had, you know, a 10 20% drop in that, that base. So that's been a, a big chunk of money uh, for people to have lost, not that they really had it in the first place. Um, but that's the sort of thing about why retirement is different and, you know, the things like sequencing risks and stuff like that that make it much more of a challenge. But let's let's talk about the sequencing risk piece a little bit more because, you know, we've got a situation where we, we have had you know, some significant volatility in markets and the natural reaction for most retirees is to sort of look for more safer and safer options. But at the same time, they still need to be able to think about, you know, what how can they generate spending you know how can they generate income that can then lead to spending and i guess the question really becomes a, a bit of a challenge for them in terms of how do they generate you know sufficient income to to meet their you know spending obligations at the same time as they're wanting to really try and reduce the risk that they that they take on how, how do you look at that 
Yeah, well, looking at that, and what you've done there, Alex, is you've started piling uh, one set of risks on top of another one, which is sort of what, uh, in a sense, that difference in retirement actually is. You know, normally we think about volatility in markets up and down and how much the market needs to recover to get back to where you started from. And you, know, the, you, know, you look back a couple of years ago and people were highlighting when the price recovered back to the post-GFC, uh, pre-GFC levels, you know, and people were talking about when returns were there. The issue is for the retiree, it is not just the recovery from the volatility. Um, the retiree needs to take money out. That's the, the definition of retirement means you've stopped working and you've got to live off your savings. And it's this sort of need to have the money that creates this, you know, it gets called sequencing risk. There's a whole lot of stuff around it. But basically, uh, because you've got to take the money out regularly in order to live, uh, if you've got to invest in the market, and say you had it in there, you know, two months ago, and then the market's dropped 20%, you really don't want to be taking it out there because you only get 80 cents on the dollar for what you had, at least on the books. So what you've got to try and do is manage um, that risk from the market exposure you know, so you don't have to take the money out of the low. And on the flip side, and you, you mentioned there as well, you're still going to chase that return. Yeah, because one solution, if you just park it all in cash, that's great. The market's not going to fall. But you're not going to generate the return that you actually need. So it becomes this additional, you know, it's not just the risk return. You know, you've got the risk return and the cash flow generation to try and put together in, in one go. So in some ways, um, the increased challenge is how do you sort of isolate that cash flow need? And, and that's sort of the key, I think, to managing some of these sequencing risks. The hard part, obviously, for, for many people now is it's, you know, you, you don't want to sit here as Harry Hindsight going, you know, oh, you should have done something else. We all saw this coming. I don't think anyone saw this coming. Um, so for someone who wasn't prepared, it's a question about, well, how do I actually get back on track and take this forward? You know, but it's coming back to, for those still thinking about retirement and what it actually is, how do they make sure they've got their cash flow secured for the, at least for a little while and have money that they can have invested for the long term still, you know, because most people are going to retirement, it is going to be 25, 30 years. You know, and if you've got a 30-year investment, you can put that in some long-term assets. They don't even need that much liquidity in that time frame. So long as you've got the assets that will generate the cash flow up front, um, that's the way you can manage that and still get those higher returns. It's an interesting piece there in terms of generating higher returns and sort of look through of cash flows. I guess this this current COVID nineteen crisis has has got people sort of questioning cash flows. Um, and obviously, when you're in the decumulation piece, yes, you're selling down and you need income. You know, how much is is that income generating component challenged? You know, maybe it's sort of challenged for a couple of years, but you know, what, what's that? What's the um, yeah, the thing that investors need to look at or retirees need to look at when, when it comes to sort of generating income and at least a sustainable level of income, do they need to sort of consider income as cash flow from traditional fixed interest style um, options versus the other selling down of assets? How, how do you try and balance out that level of, of income that's that's generated? Yeah, I think when it comes to retirees, you need to break down those traditional concepts because um, you know, and it's very people get caught up in accounting income and dividends or whatever. But the reality is, you've got a pot of money at the start of retirement that you've built up, and what you want to get out of that is the money you're going to spend through retirement. 
you know, and when you talk about retirement income, that's the income. It's just these cash flows that come out. Now, you may need and you may want to have a, a an estate to leave to the next generation. Um, that's fine. You can sort of notion, notionally carve that off. But what you need to do in terms of generating the income is to think about, well, what am I doing to convert my pile of capital into spending over you know, 25, 30, you know, however many years it's going to be through that retirement phase? And that's where, you know, if you, as you say, just putting it all into cash is not going to give you a great return at the moment. And it's probably not going to give you a great return for a while. You, know, you look at the demographics and it, of what's been happening around the world is as the populations have gotten older, and you have more retirees, yeah, and these retirees all want, they tend to be more conservative. They tend to want more fixed income style investments. Those rates have gotten lower. So this will be a challenge, I think, that'll outlast the um, the current environment. Maybe not zero percent rates, but certainly low rates will be here for a while. So you've got to get that balance between some level of safety about sort of making sure you've got the money for the near term some level of long-term growth and the preparedness to spend the capital down. Because if you're looking at the amount of income that you spend through retirement, you're only going to maximise that if you spend all your capital. If you leave money on the, you know, if you don't leave money on the table, you're not going to maximise what you're actually spending. Is there a real communication issue that comes with with uh, a lot of retirees where they sort of think they're going to spend a huge amount so they very sort of very uh, careful in what they spend in the first 10, 15 years. And then once they're sort of in their 80s or, or late 80s, they realise that their ability to spend is is reduced unless they move into some sort of an age care. And so there's a little bit of a communication that needs to be sort of had in terms of, yes, you can spend more in the in the initial space. And then as you go later, um, you, you are spending less versus, you know, uh, an aged care situation. Yeah, look, I think there's a lot there, Alex. I don't know that I'd necessarily call it a communication issue, but there is a big understanding gap. You know, uh, one of the things we run a lot of surveys with national seniors and you know, try and talk to actual retirees to understand uh, what they worry about. And one of the things is there's a big fear of running out of money at some point. You know, and it's only natural that people will be fearful of that. And, yeah, you know, I've heard, you know, even funds talk about surveying their own members who say the same thing, running out of money is a big problem. Now, because people don't have ready solutions, um, now obviously those that have got advice have got a, a better chance here, but because most people don't have the ready solution, they solve it in the way they know best. And the easiest way not to run out of money is to stop spending it. Mm. So that's what happens is they spend less early in retirement to make sure that they'll have enough uh, later but the problem being, of course, they get to that later point, realising they've been conservative and they've got more money than what they need. You know, and you'll see other commentators out there will highlight sort of some of these older people that are still saving in retirement because they haven't spent their money. They've got enough capital there still there, but they can no longer, they're so used to spending a lower amount, they're not spending what they're actually earning. Um, and look, while that's fine from not running out of money, it's not necessarily the... Uh, the best trade-off to be. And uh, when you look at the generation of people that have been retiring the last sort of, you know, current retirees in the last five or 10 years, these are people where we, they've had 10% of their salary or 9% of their salary taken out for a long time. So they've actually seen the sacrifice through their working careers across the broad masses. 
uh, to not enjoy that in retirement, I think it's a, a bit of a rough ask on them. I guess what what part does the age pension then play in terms of giving giving retirees comfort that if you you do spend maybe a little bit too much in in the early part of retirement that there is a, a safety net on the, on the other side? Yeah, Look, and the, the age pension is the ultimate safety net, um, and that's sort of the, its role. You know, and I know we've got the uh, retirement income review going, looking at the age pension versus super, and um, without sort of trying to preempt that. Some extent, I think most people would agree that the concept there is for the safety net. Uh, if you look back at prior generations, um, it was much more of an entitlement. So if you think about the people that are probably now in their 80s, you know, never had the idea of super while they worked, maybe it's sort of a late stage of retirement before they retired. Um, and so the, the, the concept is that's what they were expecting they'd be living off the age pension. And so that's what they were braced for. Now, when you move it on to the baby boomers, um, you know, a generation known for their inclination to spend more than the pre- previous generation. Uh, when you go out and get surveys of this group, you know, they see it as a, it's almost like a negative safety net. You know, um, in a sense, yes, they know it's there, but a lot of them would think and say, you know what, that's that's not really going to be enough for me. Um, you know, and there was one, uh, I was at another presentation and it was a, one of the big funds uh, basically said that, you know, they've talked, spoken to their members and their biggest fear was just having to survive on the age pension alone. And that's what they meant by running out of money. Um, you know, and as I said, the National Senior Survey's bet is out, um, that people just worry about, you know, what that age pension is. And that's not getting into, you know, other people worry about whether the age pension is going to be enough, what can we afford, you know, with the government spending $130 billion, uh, will that limit um, what the age pension can do going forward. Uh, I've certainly seen at least one commentator say we have to scale it back. Now, you know, I'd, without getting you know, say, without getting too political about that, I'd, I'd be confident the age pension will always be there, but it'll just be who gets access and how much of a safety net it actually is. Well, there's been constant, I think, debates in, in public about sort of what what the pension is who has access to it you know whether your house is included what amount of your house is included so that that's a whole political debate that i think will will continue on given the amount of money that's being spent obviously with the current uh covid19 crisis uh i guess you know the interesting piece when you talk about the pension is yes there will be a pension there but it's it's another one of those dilemmas where you don't want to be stuck there because it does really restrict your income and and I can see for how for seniors it it feels that you know you you're extremely limited and trapped as to to how you live your life so if we look to you know opportunities for retirees I guess when you're in the decumulation space it's tricky is, is there anything that they should do maybe in the lead up to that that they need to get in place before they move into decumulation, before we start, you know, we hit this point? Yeah, I, I think the lead up, you know, first one is always save as much as you can and have um, the right mindset around sustaining your lifestyle. So, it, you know, it goes without saying, you know, more is always better. Uh, but it's also having the right mindset and thinking about what you're going to do in a sec in a sense, getting a good plan about what retirement's going to mean for you. Um, and that's going to be, you know, having an idea of uh, how you convert your money, you know, to income for life. Um, 
and sort of, I suppose, in the mental frame of mind being set in that space. The challenge obviously then comes into how you actually do that at the point of retirement. This is where I think we've started to see a lot more innovation come in in recent years and people looking at things different ways. You know, if you go back a decade ago, um, you know, there was, there was no one was selling any annuities in Australia and, you know, yeah. it's not meant to be a shameless plug because, you know, Challenger sells annuities. But what we did is we got around the hit by the bus problem, you know, where everyone worried about, well, what happened if I bought the annuity and then walked out and sort of only lasted a year, I lose everything. Well, we found a way to throw life insurance in and pay that back and overcome those behavioural problems um, has seen an increase in the number of people using lifetime incomes. And we're now seeing a lot more talk in the market as well of some other innovations there. Is this, a, is this a place where we would expect to sort of see maybe some more innovation from some of the funds, from some of the, the industry funds and retail funds out there in terms of maybe pooling members as well uh, as an alternative? Yeah, and look, and when you talk, you go around and talk to some of these funds and they are looking at this a lot and thinking about doing it. You know, part of the challenge is sort of moving with regulation. You know, you look at, um, you know, funds are very hesitant to be, uh, a, a first mover that gets stuck. So they're looking at the rules and many of them understand the benefits of the, uh, it's almost a dirty word these days, but the concept of the sipper in terms of having, you know, part of the money managing the long a longevity hedge in there. But um, no one wanted to jump the gun in terms of where the government got to and where that requirement is. You know, so they're looking at thinking about, well, what can they do to help their members manage their retirement and have better peace of mind. You know, and you know, we're obviously looking at ideas around, well, how do we slice this up? How do we look at, um, you know, effectively deferring some of those payments there? And that sort of means that it's a smaller impost on the member and on the fund. Uh, there's other competitors out there looking at various sort of uh, non-guaranteed or market-based sort of pooling solutions, you know, which has a lot of merit and different ways for those that sort of still need those higher returns across everything. Um, and, you know, I think one of the things, you know, we're finding is you can, when you sit down and start talking to the funds, you can explore a lot of these different ideas. And, you know, they're not, I don't think anyone's actually set on you know, what the absolute perfect way is to do it. But I think most of them recognise that there's plenty of room for improvement from where they are today. Well, it's interesting because, you know, we, we do have large pools for, for the insurance, the group insurance space particularly. I'm just curious as to why it's sort of taken so long for there to be sort of, is it is it the, the critical mass of people that's not there in the retirement space where the pooling is difficult for the moment? Is, is that where the challenge is for some of these funds? Uh, look, I, I think historically there's been a lot of issues in terms of where it was. If you go back, um, you know, when we had an annuity market back in sort of the early 2000s, it was driven by, um, probably driven for the wrong reasons in some sense. There was sort of um, rules around age pension entitlements that sort of you got a, a bonus kick by having the annuity. And so the whole sales process was based around that. If you look at the commentary on annuities, a lot of them are based on what people see in the America. You know, but the trouble there is that the annuity in America is a very different um, beast in the sense that it's a, a tax deferral vehicle because they have limits on what they can get in there. They don't have a super system. And so people wrap a product into an annuity wrapper to get the tax benefit, but that then comes with very high uh, advisor fees and something that the 
regulations they're trying to deal with. But of course, a lot of the articles then write about, oh, annuities have very high advisor fees, um, which actually haven't really existed in Australia. And certainly in a post-FOFA world, is not something anyone can tolerate. So there's been a whole host of reasons as to what's been the struggle there. Um, a lot of them are behavioural. Uh, we tell everybody it's their money um, and people find it difficult to part with their money, um, uh, even if it's in their best best interests. And so it's just overcoming these small things one at a time. You know, I mentioned what I call the, the hit by the bus fear, um, and that was certainly something that played out and still plays out with members until they, you know, in some cases, and I've spoken to advisors who've spoken to their client and explained, no, no, well, what happens is you get your money back. Or well, you don't get your money back because you're obviously dead, but your estate gets the whole money back um, if it only lasts a couple of years. And that's sort of, oh, okay, so what's my downside? And then can start to see the benefits on that side. Um, now, obviously, working with the funds, um, they've got a lot of other things to deal with at the same time, but it's always about just getting in there and improving the outcomes for everyone. How much does cost cost play a part in in some, maybe some of the advice around annuities and and getting people comfortable with them? Uh, in, in terms of the, the cost of advice, Alex, or the the cost, cost of the, the cost of the product and getting it running, particularly in this low low interest rate environment, it was always seen as a potential challenge for for advisors to put them forward. So there's there's two parts. One is in terms of the the actual product that's been developed, and then the advice. We, we can talk about that secondary. Uh, yeah, look, and some of that comes up a bit. And we've done a bit of work looking at the actual costs. And again, the problem here is it's a perception problem rather than an actual problem. So I'll, I'll put it this way. If you've got someone who you've got a retiree who's 70 and is 100% invested in high-risk assets because they have so little or they've got such a high demand for high-returning assets, then that's probably they're going to perceive the cost is too high in the sense that they're, they're only chasing those high-risk returns. Now, you don't see too many retirees in that camp. Most retirees will have some form of defensive asset. Would it be, you know, if you look at the self-managed sector, they have nearly a third of their money in term deposits. Um, most of your super funds, and whether it be retail or not-for-profits, have a large allocation to sort of cash and fixed income type investments. So when you're looking at the cost of the annuity, the comparison isn't how does the annuity rate compare to the equity market return you expect? is how does it compare to cash and fixed income? Because that's the segment of the portfolio it should be replacing. Yeah, And when you start looking at it that way there, um, and there's a great bit of work by uh, a professor in America called Wade Fowle that uh, we've done work with before around our retirement philosophy of yin and yang. Um, and he, put, he published a book last year. Uh, it's highlighting that actually the cost of getting these defensive assets uh, through the annuity is actually lower than if you're trying to use cash or fixed income. Yeah, and the reason for that is because it's got this inbuilt capital consumption. So it does that very efficiently. You know, um, you know, if you've got so much money that you know you're going to keep it all at the end for the kids and you can live off the income, well, that's fine. That's not going to work. But most people have got their money that they need to get to last through their retirement. And using the annuity is actually a low-cost way of doing that compared to trying to have a defensive asset for cash and fixed income. So it doesn't replace the equity or the, the property, but these defensive assets, it's actually a cheaper way of doing it. 
So, so I guess before we move to advice, is is there a sort of an approach that maybe is you know, this annuity piece with another pool of money that's on the side? Is is that is that sort of one of the approaches to actually getting people more comfortable about annuities rather than sort of moving totally to annuities in one go? Oh, certainly, and that's the only way we've sold them in the last ten years, Alex. You know, this. Yeah, you know, I think um, when I go back to when I started in the role back in 2011. And it was all about, um, or we could just call it partial annuitisation at the start. And the sales guys talk about layering, but it's about just taking a portion of the allocation and using that because no one needs to guarantee every dollar through retirement. There's only a small bit that will give you that peace of mind, and then you apply the right solution to the right sort of problem, as it were. Yeah, so you need some high growth, you need some high returns, then you've got negative exposure, you need some secure income, you know, and you need it to last for life, or there's a little bit for the annuity there. You know, one of the key observations was actually if you've got the age pension, you know, and, and say as a couple, uh, you you think you need forty thousand dollars a year. Well, you know, worst case, the age pension's gonna give you thirty-five. So you only need to source another five thousand, which isn't gonna cost you very much at all. Um, you know, and trying to, you know, annuitize everything um, just doesn't it doesn't stack up for most people it works really well for public servants because it's easier for those defined benefit pensions if they're all just getting an annuitized rate but to most people uh, you're better off with this partial solution where you're targeting a solution uh, whether it be a product or a structure to the problem at hand mm-hmm. So let's move then to to the advice space, and I guess one of the big challenges, particularly in the in the decumulation retirement part of the puzzle, is is the amount of time. A lot of a lot of advisors don't start to see people until later on in their life, when you know maybe a little bit late. But I guess in terms of if people now um, looking at their super or and currently in retirement, you know, I guess what what benefits can we see maybe from a, a digital transformation of how we live our lives that that can potentially help in, in communicating some of these new strategies, these layering uh, options that you just you described in terms of annuities, and and also communicating more the plan around what what level of spending that um, you know retirees should be looking at. That's right. I think there's a great scope for that, Alex. You know, even you know, just the podcast where I'm sitting here from home recording this over Zoom, uh, we're finding out how useful digital solutions can actually be in our everyday uh, working and way of life. When it's coming to the advice, you know, one of the challenges you've got is um, when you're looking at, you know, you're looking at the life cycle of investing in, you know, I actually uh, run a course through Macquarie Uni on this. The hardest point is getting to what do you do at the start of retirement? Because this is the, the biggest decision you have to make, you know, and, you think about your lifetime and instead of taking on that mortgage to buy the first home, you know, which gets later and later every year. But the difference between going from just saving to making sure you've got enough to spend is where people need their biggest hand. Um, and it's typically where you've seen most of the advice business come through, normally about five years before as people start thinking about it and have I got enough and all that sort of stuff there. Now, the challenge, of course, has been, you know, if you again, you go back a decade ago, you didn't have as many retirees and they didn't have that much money. So if you only had $100,000, um, you sort of, you know, you either went and spent it and enjoyed it or parked it away for a rainy day and lived off your 5000 a year worth of your term deposit and had your age pension to go with that. 
But today, it's a lot more money people have got to find a solution for. So they do need some form of help. Um, you know, we know with all the advice reforms that the number of advisors is going down, not up. Um, and I think what you're seeing across the industry is a focus um, advice businesses with all their overheads and everything. They've got to be able to break even and they need to find clients that uh, can pay for that advice. So it's almost going to be rationed in that sense they're the face-to-face. So there's plenty of scope here for uh, some form of digital solution or scaled solution to meet the needs of many. And I think, you know, some of the concepts probably go a little bit too far in defaulting everybody in. But, you know, you, you can have a look at, and we've seen some of the things sort of around the UK, which is what they've done um, with the changes in retirement there. So not everyone has to annuitise and people with smaller pots of money are actually looking at what they do in that sense there. And you can find ways to set it up so that you've got almost put them on the pathway. Um, yeah, and I wasn't going to call out any funds in particular, but when I mentioned sort of the fund that has cohorted its members into seven groups to take them along the path, that everyone knows it's Q Super. Uh, but that, you know, when you look at the, the um, communications around that, that creates a messaging for the members about what their paths are and, and how they go through that space there. And I think there's plenty of scope to expand on that um, and deliver scaled advice so that people have a better idea about what to expect, um, have a clearer idea about what they can do in retirement, uh, you know, when they hit that point of retirement, and something that'll work uh, smoothly for the funds as well. So, yeah, plenty of scope to do more. Last last question, and it comes back to the innovation piece, and, and I think some of the work that you just mentioned with Q Super and building cohorts, and and that is also one of the things that we taught we talked about actually as we set up this whole retirement conference earlier this year, and it was really about how can we change the retirement system in Australia, and and what are the potential uh, solutions? I guess is, is there any sort of key innovation that you've seen globally that is is great you've mentioned the uk is there anything else that you you can see that australia is probably missing or needs to investigate further in the next few years yeah look to be honest alex i'm probably a little bit um biased in this question because whenever we look globally at what's going on we see lots of issues um the world have come up with but no one's anywhere near where australia is in terms of um having to decumulate you know, you've either got systems in the world where they're a defined benefit-based system, which doesn't quite fit the mix here. It's basically, everyone's annuitised or put into a, a um, defined benefit pension. Or if you look at the, the big market in America, it's got the big dollars, but it doesn't have the big pe- numbers of people. So they're very skewed towards higher net worth. Um, so Australia's got, we've got the problem of having, really being the first country that's got the median sort of retiree, you know, this is your average Joe in the street, who's got money to deal with in retirement. So finding a global solution, uh, no one else has had that problem as well. Um, but what you do see is you see a lot of the different innovation and the ideas that come through. You know, and we, we, um, you know, even people from the UK come and talk to us about sort of participating in their longevity swap markets and what we can do there. So, you know, I know some of the funds here have looked at the same thing, whether they call it a longevity swap or mortality swap looking at deferred products, um, breaking down premium, you know, making it look more like group insurance, you know, which in itself is, I think, quite innovative in terms of why that was set up. So I, I think there's a lot going on out there. Um, well, we're certainly not the only ones 
thinking about different ways of, of doing it. You know, you look, um, I look at the rest of the people who are, are at the retirement conference and you had people like the Retire Plus and the Mercer looking at slicing things different ways there. Um, we've got a lot of thinking going into this stuff out there. And um, I think ultimately we're going to get better results here, you know, for the fund that we implement and for the members to benefit from. Well, that's fantastic. Great place to, to finish today. Thank you very much for your time today, Aaron. Thank you, Alex. It's been a pleasure.